Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're starting at verse 37, guys, if you turn there with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. In 1937, an obscure and hardly known English author began writing what has become one of the best-selling sagas of all time. J.R.R. Tolkien had his work, The Lord of the Rings, finally published in 1954. But much to his chagrin, the publishers had him dissect his incredibly long novel into three separate books. If you've read his series, you know just how long these books on their own are. He wanted them all together. This thing would have made the Gutenberg Bible look like a pamphlet. In the first book of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, an unlikely band of companions came together. Coming from very different backgrounds, and some of them almost enemies because of bad blood in their past. Nevertheless, they came together. Albeit a fragile relationship at first, what knit them together was a common goal. And over the course of their journey, they shared in triumphs and defeats, loss and gain, betrayal and brotherhood. And this stood out to me first service. I don't have it written down, but as I read that description, the Lord struck me with the fact that that description seems to really appropriately describe the fellowship that Jesus had with his disciples, even betrayal and brotherhood. This ragamuffin band in The Lord of the Rings, this ragamuffin band of warriors experienced true fellowship, not because they met together once a week over tea and crumpets, though, or even twice a week, but because they suffered together. They conquered together. They lived life together as one, like one man. Fellowship has been a cornerstone here at the bridge. It's, it's even in the name that we choose to identify with, the Bridge Christian Fellowship. We started out as a group, small group that met in someone's home, of just some simple Jesus-following, Bible-reading, spirit-led people who came from different directions, communities, and backgrounds, all to meet together in someone's home. So what was our goal? It was to know Jesus and walk with him together. The Bridge Christian Fellowship. As the fellowship of the believers grew, out of the Gilmore's house, we moved into the Gilmore's barn. Then the barn expanded. Then we added modules. Then we rented a farmhouse across the street. And here we are today. What grew the bridge, though, was not a program. It wasn't a program. It wasn't a well-planned scheme for growth or even the generous donations of a few wealthy. What grew this fellowship was God's Spirit, uniting us in simple and pure devotion to his word, life together, regular communion, and loads of prayer. This fellowship over the years has been bathed in prayer, and we have so much further to go in prayer. We shared meals, and we cared for each other's families, either for spouse going on deployment, and I look across and see some of you guys who are in the military and you've experienced these? Or a baby being born. We just got to have a baby born in our family. I'm an uncle again. The loss of a loved one. Or cared for each other and brought meals through the challenge of illness or tra tragic events. We braved the elements of a freezing barn and frozen porta potties in the winter. Yep, I remember that. It was like indoctrination. You're going to the bridge now, Jake. I go out to the restroom. I was going to go at home. Nah, 
There's porta potties. I step on the pedal and it's frozen. I won't describe what happened after that. And then just warm summer months when the barn turned greenhouse and our porta potties had gone from freezers to saunas. And yet, despite these conditions, the Lord added to our number. When our gathering was threatened by a cease and desist order, we rallied together in prayer and we continued forward in faith. And God gave us favor. Our fellowship wasn't complicated, but it was powerful. It was simple, but it was pure. Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I pray, guys, that as the Bridge Christian Fellowship makes another go around, another journey through God's word from Genesis to Revelation, that will witness the bond of his spirit in our fellowship like we haven't before. A lot of us like to be nostalgic. And I'm a sentimental guy, you can ask my wife. Look back at the barn days, we're a barn church. We're not a barn church, we're the Bridge Christian Fellowship. In order for this bond of his spirit to take us further down the road and closer together, this will require greater devotion on our part, a greater sacrifice from all of us to see his spirit at work in us and through our communities. The question is, are we up for it? So let's go ahead and turn, if you're not there already, we're in Acts chapter two, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. What did they hear? At this point, the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles, baptized them in power. They are proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in various languages to all these Jewish folk who, rep, who have come to Jerusalem for the celebration, and they come with their own foreign language, including their Jewish culture, and they're all hearing the same message in different languages. And they were pierced to the heart by this message, the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and, and for all who are far off. If you're here this morning and you feel far off, you feel far out, you feel beyond God's love, but you're hoping against hope, you don't have to hope against hope. Hope in Jesus will not disappoint you. If you're here and you feel far off, he's calling you out by name. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself, and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting and urging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Talk about evangelism explosion. You know how the church grew in the beginning? Someone unapologetically preached the word of God. He told them, you have sins, and you need to turn from them so you can be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said it plainly, and the people accepted it, and they were radically changed by it, as we're about to see later this morning. But why? Why were they compelled to receive this message? Why did they surrender their lives to be transformed by the radical power of Jesus, but as we'll see, experience sufferings as a result of this? Because they heard the word of Christ preached, and faith was born to believe in Jesus. It's simple, simple and pure. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Just this last Sunday, and I believe again on Wednesday, Pastor Les preached over and over that if you have received it and believed in Jesus, you're an evangelist. You have been called to preach 
Some like to say, I preach the gospel, and when necessary, I speak. We misquote Francis Assisi, thinking our good conduct is enough, but it's not. That sounds nice, but Jesus didn't just work signs and miracles. Jesus proclaimed the truth. Paul and the apostles didn't just live good lives. They preached the good news about Jesus, and they were hated for it. But there were also many who came to a real, powerful, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, and they joined a fellowship that was unstoppable and is still today. We need to return to the fundamentals of our identity, our DNA as the church. We're not a building. We're not an institution. We're not a program. We're not even a movement. That sounds really cool. We're not a movement. We are beyond all that because the one who made us and called us out is beyond all that. This is not a human invention. We're people who've been called out by Jesus to walk with him in a new life. And as we walk with him, invite others to the same. As you go, make disciples in his name. The first time we see the word church mentioned, it's in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus promised that upon this rock I will build my church. The word church is ecclesia. Many of you already know this. It literally means called ones or called out. Jesus promised that he would establish and build up his called ones with himself as the rock upon which their fellowship stands. With him as Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of the living God upon that rock, his church would be established and the gates of Hades will not prevail. So what do we see happening here in Acts? Peter doing the very thing we just saw here. Peter confessing and preaching the truth that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the son of the living God, the exact image and representation of the eternal God. Last Sunday, if there was nothing else we heard, if nothing else, there are two things you could take away. If you've personally accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, then you've been called to share the gospel, plain and simple. If you've accepted the call, then he calls you to follow his example and call out to others. The metaphor is sowing seed, casting seed on soils called hearts. It's not up to us as to what the soil conditions are like. We pray to the Lord for the soil conditions. We're just called to take the gospel seed of his truth and share it with people and he will cause the growth and the increase. If you've given your life to Jesus, then preach the truth. Share with this dying, desperate world that they need Jesus. They need Jesus. They have sins that they're gonna pay for if they don't have Jesus. Are we preaching that message? Plain and simple, with an invitation of love and forgiveness, unconditional. And if you haven't or you're like, oh, I know I'm really not doing so hot here, it's okay. It's okay because it's not too late. You're here, you're alive, you got breath in your lungs. That means the Lord's given you time to press in and to grow in this. But there's a second group. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your savior, no amount of arguing or reasoning is gonna convince you. Because Ephesians 2.8 tells us it's by God's grace through faith and Ephesians 1:18 through 19 says that the eyes of your heart, not your head, will be enlightened so that you will personally know and experience the surpassing greatness of his power. Faith doesn't come by human reasoning. It comes by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10:17. All we have to do is share the word and leave it between that person and the Lord to come to the decision. Are you listening and receiving what he's saying right now? Am I? Acts 2.42, let's look at the next verse here. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We read here that the burgeoning church, I mean, one day, 3,000 added to their number, was continually devoted. If you've been here when Rick taught on this or you've heard the teaching, again, this is a review 
The Greek word is proskartareo, literally to be enduringly strong toward. But this can mean different things based on what it's about. I'll give you an example. I shared it last service. I'll make myself vulnerable again this service. I am no math whiz at all. Those of you who are good with numbers, God bless you. We need you because I ain't one of them. And unfortunately, when I was in high school, I failed a semester of advanced algebra. Failed. Yep. This learned man teaching the word of God failed algebra. I wasn't good at it, and so I didn't like it, and so I didn't try, and so I failed. I had to go back and repeat it. Those were the days when you actually had to pass your classes. Anyway, I was not a diligent student. I was not enduringly strong toward algebra. That's one way to use this word. When you're talking about an object, this continual devotion, if it's about an object, an inanimate thing, or a concept, it's the picture of being a focused, diligent student, which sounds nice, but when this word is referred to people and relationships, it takes it to a whole new level. I shared it last service. Fortunately, my wife's not here, so she doesn't have to blush, but I might be a miserable math student, and I'm, no, I'm definitely no perfect human being, but I love my wife, and we have been blessed to have nine years of marriage together, and the Lord has really blessed me with joy, but he's really refined me being married to my wife. Marriage, young people, marriage is not to make you happy. It is to make you holy. Just write that one down. It's cliche. You may have heard it before. Remember it. Know it. Memorize it. When you get married, that's what you have to look forward to. Lots of great times. There's romance, hopefully. Um, But nine years of marriage, 19 years of marriage, 29, 39, 49. Has anyone here been married for 29 years? Wow. Okay, put your hands down. Who here has been married for 39 years? Wow, or more. 49 years? Whoo-wee. All right. We've got some role models here. How do you go that long being married? You endure, what's the word? You endure in strength toward that person with that person. If it's about an object, you're diligent. If it's about a person, you're loyal. Loyalty. Look at verse 42. They were loyal to the apostles' teaching. They were loyal to the fellowship. They were loyal to the breaking of bread. And they were loyal to prayer. That kind of puts a different aspect on things, doesn't it? Are you a diligent student learning about Jesus or are you a loyal disciple following Jesus? You know why the early church was so radical in their faith? Radical. Because they were simply and purely loyal to Jesus. They didn't treat Jesus like an object to be studied. Are we to study the word? Yes. You study the word so that you can grow in your loyalty with the word. We don't have a relationship with this. And I speak this to a fellowship who has been faithful to go through the Lord's teaching for 16 years. But I think there's a word that God wants to bring to us in this just for us to check our hearts and do some introspective searching. James 2.18. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. We see Jesus actually doing this. He challenged the Pharisees and the doubters and the haters. In John 10, 37, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe in me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The early church acted on their faith and it was proven by their commitment. They weren't just diligent students. They were loyal to the point of dying on a cross. 
Let's look at the first thing they were loyal to, though, before I get more into fellowship, which is going to be most of the teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've been continually devoted to God's word at the bridge, like I said, for the last 16 years. But we need to be careful not to let that go to our heads. Don't let it go to your head. There's a difference between hearers and doers. And the Pharisees, by the way, if they were here, they'd been like, I'm a doer. I do all the things the law commands. Be careful. We need to remember that it was the very people who, quote, knew the word of God the most that ended up murdering the word of God on a cross. They knew it better than anybody else, supposedly. 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us that knowledge makes us arrogant, but love strengthens and builds us up. 1 Corinthians 13.2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. We really need to be careful how we pour over these words and how we use these words and where these words are going. Would you guys do me a favor and uh, turn to James chapter three with me? James chapter three, verse 13. True knowledge comes from walking in the spirit and no amount of studying can make up for time in relationship with Jesus. Keep that in mind. Three, actually verse 13, chapter three, verse 13. James writes, actually, Yaakov. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Let me read that one more time. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The Pharisees <laughs> were not gentle. But what kind of wisdom do these guys have? Because we know they had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized by heart. Every jot and every tittle, every little punctuation mark, they had it memorized by heart. Who here can say that? Cool, I can't. And yet they killed the Messiah. How? Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. It says in the Gospels they hated him because they were jealous of Jesus. They had selfish ambition in their heart. They were to promote themselves. Look how holy I am. Look how spiritual I am. You need me. They were all about giving and they had no need to receive because they knew it all. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Go back to Acts with me. Jesus told the people in Israel, these Pharisees, they know their Torah. You listen to what they're telling you, but do not live like them. For all the Pharisees' knowledge, their hearts revealed who they really were. Matthew 12, 34, the last part of verse 34 Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And as we saw, for people who knew just the Ten Commandments for crying out loud, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not kill, literally murder. There's a whole lot said about slandering your neighbor. What did they do? They were covetous and jealous of Jesus, and so they were full of bitterness, and they slandered him left and right. That was the only way they could justify getting him up on a cross. The people who knew the word of God the most ended up being responsible for leading the charge of hanging the word of God on the cross. So when we say we're devoted, continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, we need to know the difference. What was the difference between the Pharisees, devotion, and the disciples' devotion. 
One was a diligent student, and one was a loyal, humble follower. Humility and gentleness reveal wisdom, and wisdom begets knowledge. And for those of us who are like, well, then I need to make sure that I am being humble. I need to act humble. That only goes so far. At some point, something in your life is going to snap, and your true character is going to come out, your true colors. A humble heart cannot be hidden, and neither can a proud one. James 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And this is the problem. This is the disconnect. The Pharisees, the religious spiritual elites, the theologians of the day, accumulated the word of God in their heads, and that was it. They knew the information better than anyone else, but they were totally blind to the obvious revelation of God in the flesh. The only way God's word will actually work in your life is if you receive it first in your heart. Then it will affect your mind. Nicodemus, one of the well-known Pharisees at the time, came under the cover of darkness to have a conversation with Jesus because he saw this young rabbi had an authority and a spiritual wisdom like nobody else. So he came, came under darkness. So no one else, none of his Pharisee buddies would see. And Nicodemus was perplexed. And when we read the conversation in John 3, we're like, why doesn't this guy get it? Nicodemus is like, I have to be born again? How do I enter my mother's womb? And Jesus, who is spiritually minded, is talking to a man who is naturally minded, who was diligent in the word, but he was not loyal to the heart of God. We need to take an introspective look into our hearts and see what are we doing with the word that we have been hearing and reading and studying we don't need to reinvent God's word to make it relevant or progressive either. And we live in a day and age of that a lot. David Guzik, a pastor and teacher and scholar, writes, every pastor should seek to be unoriginal in the sense that we don't have our own doctrine, but the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. And do you guys know what the apostles' doctrine was? The Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi. When Paul and all these guys that we read about writing the books in the New Testament, when they come to the church, you know what they had? The Old Testament. Here's a challenge. Maybe you can share the gospel. Have you ever tried to share the gospel just using the Old Testament scripture? Because that's what Paul did, and did it really well. Food for thought, something to consider. The second thing that they were continually devoting themselves to, they were loyal to, is fellowship. The word here for fellowship, as many of you already know, is koinonia. Over time, this has been, in a way, somewhat lost in translation, though. What is koinonia? What is fellowship? Is it community? Is community fellowship and fellowship community? Its meaning has been kind of watered down. And I think the church, especially, has lost a sense of what this fellowship is. Based on my limited resources, I didn't find too much insight on what fellowship is. I looked around. I got a little bit here and there, but I was kind of frustrated. I'm like, this is a big deal. Like, there should be scores of commentary on this. And I went after commentary after commentary, a little blip on it, saying the, the basic stuff I already knew. Fellowship is fellowship. Well, thanks for expounding on that truth. And God gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you study my word to know what men think or do you study my word to know what I know? So, humble Bible student, the Lord took me to school again and he showed me from his word what he means when he says fellowship. And here's what I found. It's in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not mind-blowing, I know, just follow me. By the way, the word fellowship in the NASB is communion in the King James Version. Galatians 2.9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. 
Like I said, you're like, okay, this kind of reiterates what we already kind of conceive and know about fellowship. Check out these next passages, and here's a challenge. See if you can find where the word koinonia is translated into English. Here it's clear. Koinonia is translated as fellowship. See if you can find it in these next two passages. Romans 15, 26. Paul writes, But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 9.13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your distribution to them all. The word that's used to translate koinonia here isn't fellowship. In this context, koinonia is translated contribution or distribution. So it's not just friends getting together. There's a contributing. There's a distributing. This adds a little more depth to our understanding of what real fellowship looks like. Koinonia is connected to the lifestyle of contributing, distributing, and sharing with others. Now things are going to get good. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We share in it. We experience it together. Now look at Acts 2.43. Acts 2.43, keep going on. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Guys, fellowship, true fellowship is when we share who we are and what we have with each other who believe in Jesus as the Christ. This is a radical concept that really challenges our American, Americanized sense of Christianity. What does it mean to be an American Christian? We need to take our American culture and put it to the side. Our culture needs to be shaped by God's word and who our Father in heaven is, not by the current trend that we live in. I know I taught on this passage back in June. If you were here in June, you're like, didn't he teach out of Acts 2, 37 through 47? Yep, I did. So let me repeat what I shared last time. <laughs> Pastor John Corson, in his application commentary, wrote, college professors in the 60s and 70s who used this verse, they shared, they distributed with all who had need. They used this verse to say that the early church was communist and they missed the marks completely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Don't worry, Rick will be back next week. The early believers were not communists. The early believers were communists. And there's a big difference. I, I'll explain it this way. Communism says, what's yours is mine. Communism says, what's mine is yours. Sacrifice. True fellowship cannot come without sacrifice. It is impossible. Husbands and wives, can I get an amen to that? Right? Think about it, guys. Why do military combatants feel a sense of loss or experience loneliness when they get to come home from the horrors of combat? Why do they seem like they're missing something? It's because they experienced some of the darkest and most threatening challenges, as well as the triumphs of life. And they did it with the ones who fought alongside with them. Their, their lives were connected so much so, they had to trust each other. The guy on the left, the guy on the right. I watched a documentary. Um, some of you may have seen it. Uh, it's on the Korangal Valley soldiers over there, 
And the kind of fighting that took place there, the intensity, they had not seen this kind of carnage and intensity and close combat since Vietnam. These Afghan warriors were coming up so close, they were able to touch our soldiers. We weren't shooting missiles long away. We were hiking through switchbacks and fighting people in their own territory, watching, watching out for a guy who might come out and stab them. Close. And guys died. There was a high attrition rate compared to the rest of our troops who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. But these guys, when they came back, aside from the obvious PTSD they suffered, they missed the bond that they had over there. They come back here, it's easy. I don't have to depend on anyone, really. I've got a, a favorite line in a popular movie, Marvel's Avengers Age of Ultron. All right. Tony Stark, also known as Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr., justifies a huge mistake. And this mistake pretty much sets the tone and the plot for the rest of the movie. He tries to justify a huge blunder he's made because it was out of an attempt to face a power that threatens the very existence of life across the universe. This foreign threat. And because of his poor choice in going about resisting the threat, he was motivated by fear, the very thing that he created to give them security ended up being their worst enemy. So Tony, facing the criticism of his team, asks them, he, he challenges them, how were you guys planning on beating that? And Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, played by Chris Evans, simply replies, together. And Iron Man says back, We'll lose. And without skipping a beat, Captain America says, then we'll do that together too. Cheesy movie, but those lines mean a lot. What are we willing to sacrifice to be in fellowship and live for the glory of Jesus? Another favorite movie of mine, The Lord of the Rings. In the first of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, at the end of the movie, the fellowship is seriously jeopardized. One of the guys betrays them, but in a last failed attempt, redeems himself by sacrificing his life to save others. But the fellowship's getting torn apart, and Frodo, the guy who's carrying this ring, who's kind of the center of the fellowship, they're all coming together to support him as he takes this thing into, well, you could say, right into the gates of hell. He's going into a darkness that they realize as the movies go on, they're probably not gonna come back from. He's on a boat and he's getting ready to cross the river before the rest of the gang finds out. He needs to get out. I won't explain why. But his buddy, Samwise Gamgee, this loyal guy, he's like a loyal dog, honestly. And he gets made fun of, but no one can question his loyalty. The guy can't swim to save his life. Frodo's out in the middle of this deep river and his buddy starts walking out. He's like, and I'm coming with you. And he's like, Sam, you're gonna drown. And he just keeps walking out in the water and pretty soon he starts to drown. And then Frodo grabs him and pulls him up over the boat. And he's like, what are you doing? You could have died. He said, I made a promise. I made a promise to be with you to the end. And I intend to keep that promise. And at the end of the trilogy, they're on the side of this mountain having accomplished their goal with lava and the mountain blowing up and they're ready to die but they were gonna do it together for the sake of the fellowship. Another movie, I like movies. You Navy folks know this one and I've quoted it before. Um, Flight of the Intruder. Two guys who are fed up with the political shenanigans of the US government and how they squander our resources to fight a war we didn't even intend to win Take it upon themselves, we're gonna make a mission that's gonna count for something. They go and they accomplish it and they come back and they get flack, pun intended. They get flack for it because their admiral says, you broke the faith. No one sent you out to do this. You took it upon yourself. And you know what? Because you did it your own way, it doesn't, it doesn't matter squat. You broke the fellowship, he says. You broke the faith. And then Danny Glover, in a, in a rare moment in the movie, he goes from being this drill sergeant type 
to this guy who's empathetic as a brother, and he goes, all we really have is each other. You might feel like you're losing the war. Fight for the fellowship. Fortunately for us, we have a leader named Jesus who has established the fellowship, and he said, my church is founded on me as the rock, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. If we maintain our faithfulness to his faithfulness, if we maintain, if we press in to the fellowship with him together. Let's turn to Philippians chapter three, verse eight. Philippians 3, 8. Paul addresses this reality of sacrifice for fellowship. We'll start at verse seven. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had a lot to lose up. He was, he was the head and a rising star, if you could say, in the echelons of Jewish culture, well on his way to being, who knows, maybe the, the chief priest. This guy knew his Torah. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the Bible. But as a result of a revelation he had, and a personal encounter with Jesus, he took everything he knew, all his credentials, all his accomplishments, all his accolades, all his prestige, and he threw it in the trash. He says here, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Look down at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Are we willing to maintain and fight for the kind of fellowship that puts everything on the line? Our job, our money, our house, our possessions, even relationships, all for the sake of our loyalty to Jesus and our loyalty to his fellowship. To have fellowship is to live life together, to go through the good and the bad, and there is no other way. That's fellowship. You do anything short of that, you can call it whatever you want, but it's not fellowship. You can say we have community. That's nice. It's not fellowship the way God describes it. Rick has put this out here, and I'm gonna back him in this, and I know, <laughs> I'm sure I'll get flack for this, but let me just hear me out. All we're asking for is Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, and a home group during the week. I figured some of you would chuckle. And you know what? I laugh right along with you because it is no small commitment. It's not. But remember what the church was doing in Acts 2.42? Let's look. Look back at Acts 2.42. I gotta flip there real quick. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves. Do we remember what this means? They were loyal to Jesus, and so they were loyal to the fellowship of his people. Above all else, where is our loyalty? The reality is, Rick, or less, I won't put my name in there. We're not asking you guys to do this. Rick's not asking me to do this. Jesus is calling us out for this. He's called you out. He's called me out to be a part of something greater than ourselves, beyond our self-centered interests, beyond us, to be a part of something greater but that fellowship is gonna lack when you don't bring your part, like a body. If I don't have my right arm, boy, my body's not the same without it, especially because I'm right-handed. The reality is, guys, we are the ecclesia. We are the church, not this place, not the barn, not even the Gilmore's house. We're the church, 
and he's called us out. Jesus is calling us out. This isn't about being spiritual. This isn't about being religious. It's not even about being a good Christian. Go read the book of Acts and see the kind of attacks the church faced just for simply devoting themselves to Jesus and to one another. Acts 2.42 doesn't look very threatening. Why were they attacked for devoting themselves to the teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer? That doesn't sound like the actions of a terrorist, does it? And yet they were treated like that. Why the hostility? Folks, it's because we have an enemy. How does this enemy attack? 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone. I shared this first service. I guess I'll share it again. <sighs> Having breakfast with Rick. We get done. Walking across the street. And after Rick hearing me talk about life and ministry, I was only in like a, a year or two at that point in youth ministry. He says, Jake, can I be honest with you? Can I share something with you? Some of you already know what I'm going to say. I said, sure. I'm an open book. He said, you got to stop wallowing in the self-pity. That hurts me so deeply. <laughs> ah, don't go down that road. <laughs> self-pity. Whatever challenges you're facing, you're not alone. You're not that special. You are special, but you're not so unique that no one else knows what it's like. I grew up with a dad my whole life who is bedridden, sick as a dog. And you know what he told me growing up? My 34 years of existence, someone's got it worse than me, Jacob. And I've got it worse than someone else. It's not about my problem. It's about us as a family. It's about Jesus. We need to take our eyes off of us and put, it, put them back on him. Think about this. Going back to the metaphor of the devil, as a prowling lion, what do lions do to take down prey? They hunt creatures who are isolated, who are alone, and whether that's because they're physically weak from old age or because they're young and little or because of an injury or disease, they go after the ones who aren't with the rest of the herd. And if there's not a straggler, maybe the herd is pretty close and tight, there's no loner, then the lions or the wolves or any other predator will strategically seek to divide and then kill by dividing their strength. Remember, if you've got issues with someone in this fellowship, Matthew 18 makes it clear, go to them. Because your enemy is not the person sitting next to you or the person you see once a week. I know some people who have stopped gathering in the fellowship because of a feud or a problem they had with someone else and they couldn't bear to see them. The enemy is not us. The enemy is Satan. And he's going to use whatever weaknesses we have to drive a wedge to separate and divide us. Why? Because he can't take the fellowship on headstrong. He's got to isolate us. If you have stuff that you need to confess or you need to go talk with a brother or sister about bad blood or judgments or grudges or bitterness or whatever, maybe they did something wrong to you. Go work it out. Because in the end, we're the losers for it. Not Satan. Who are we fighting against? Now, let's say you're the lone warrior. That's the life you lead. You've already done the hardest part for him if you're leading this life by yourself. Now all he has to do is wear you down. But if you're tired and if you're weak, alone, or sick, but you're still in the fellowship with Jesus and his church, then your burdens, whatever they may be, won't be yours to carry alone. Galatians 6.2. Sam talks to his friend Frodo. Frodo's going a little nutso in the head. This ring has really got him wrapped around the axle, starting to play mind tricks on him. And Sam goes, I just want to help you share the load. And if it weren't for his buddy Sam, Frodo would have never been the hero to win the day by destroying the ring of power. He needed Sam. I need you. You need me. 
We need each other with Jesus. He's the Savior, so we don't need to get onto the Messiah complex thing, okay? You don't need me to save you, but we need each other's parts of the body. And if there are issues there, we got to identify for what it is. Our human failings being capitalized on by the enemy. And if it hasn't been, give it time. We need to band together. We cannot do this life alone. If you're like, man, my life is good. I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm capable, I'm successful, I got a great family, yada, 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 yada. I said it first service, I'll say it second service, as gently as I can. You're a fool. (laughs) Give it time. That's what happened to my dad. And I say it in all seriousness. My dad had it all. Good looks, hard worker, intelligent man. He worked his way, man. He earned his. He pulled himself up by the bootstraps and he lost his health like that. A man in his 20s started having heart attacks. What's going on? And all I've ever known is a father with a body that's riddled by disease. But you know what? I've also had a father who recognized his desperate need for Jesus and his yearning for fellowship. We all need to be like that. We all need to be desperate for fellowship with each other because we need each other. All we have is each other. What are we willing to do to sacrifice for that fellowship? This is one of the major reasons why I love J.R.R. Tolkien, his epic saga, Lord of the Rings, because it displays a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of the powerful and lasting fellowship. By the end of the arduous trek, all the members in this fellowship have either died or they've come inches from death, all for the sake of defending each other, which was motivated by a common goal. What's our common goal? What do we rally around? When Jesus comes again and takes us to himself, this is our goal, that where he is, we will be also. Our goal is to be with him. What was my wife's goal with me when we were engaged? To get ready to marry me so that we would be together. Jesus said in John 17, 22, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see, where, see my glory, which you have given me. Notice, Jesus isn't singling out one believer. He's talking about all of us together. That's the goal, to be together with Jesus. We will not succeed, and we will not get there alone. It's impossible. And when you're this sold out for Christ and you're this committed to each other, nothing can take you down. Nothing will wipe you out, not even death itself. Turn with me to Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35. Paul writes to the church in Rome, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sore? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, Psalm 44, 22. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Together. Let me read one last thing about sacrifice for fellowship and we'll, we'll wrap up the last part of Acts here pretty quick. This is in 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. You can turn there if you want or you can just listen in. 2 Samuel 23, starting at verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Philistines are the enemy, by the way. David had a craving and said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. 
So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Fellowship, true fellowship, is when we lay our, ourselves down. These guys went risking their lives to the point of death to get this man water. How far will we go for each other? How much will I sacrifice and humble myself for you? How much will I humble myself? True fellowship is when we lay ourselves down to shed tears of joy and tears of pain, shouts of joy and cries of sorrow, dark nights of loss and bright mornings of victory, together as one, achad, shoulder to shoulder. There's a lot more I could say on fellowship, but this is where the Lord wants me to stop, and for the sake of time, we're gonna keep going on. But trust me, there'll probably be more coming from me later on. In chapter two, go back to Acts chapter two, verse 46. Acts 2, 46. Just the first half. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. I just talked about being one, oneness here. And here it is, day by day, continuing. So actually, what we're encouraging everyone to do here at the bridge is peanuts. Three days? Try every day. Compared to what they were doing? We're encouraging folks to offer up three days for the Lord. They were committed to it day by day. That's because they understood their desperate need. And I'll put my name right in there in the hat with you guys. Every day? Man, I gotta see you every day? Just kidding. You'd have to see me every day too. I know I'm coming off strong, I'm only coming off strong because I'm urging us, because the Lord is urging us. You gotta press in. You gotta get closer for what is ahead, what's coming down the road, not just in this fellowship, but in this country and in this world. You're gonna need each other. Now's the time. People don't start banding in fellowships once they're in combat. They do it beforehand so that when the combat comes, they're ready together. Philippians 2, one through three, talks about what this one mind looks like. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship, koinonia, of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And where was this happening? in the temple, or today the church house, and house to house. Let's finish it out. Verse 46, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. House to house, breaking bread. Now some people discuss and debate, is this talking about communion or sharing a meal? And I would say, yes, it was both. Consider this, back in the early church, do you think they were taking juice cups or wine and bread in the synagogue or the temple to remember the sacrifice of Jesus? No, the folks who led the temple hated Jesus. So where did they take this? In the home. They had this fellowship and communion in the home. This interaction, by the way, stimulated a supernatural joy that we read in Acts 16.23. This joy that was stimulated was so strong that when Paul and Silas were beaten and then thrown into the deepest, darkest dungeon facing certain death, the joy of their fellowship with the Lord and with each other broke them free. I'm gonna turn there really quickly. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These guys have their legs out like this. 
They're sitting on their bums and their hips are spread out wide and they're in chains and they have to hold this position and it's uncomfortable and they're sitting in all kinds of squalor because they don't go in and clean these dungeons out. Whatever happens in there stays in there and they got nasty vile critters running around looking for a nibble off of a human body. These guys are in a horrible, horrible situation and they're getting ready to face death. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Everyone's. What happened as a result of Paul and Silas praising and sharing with Jesus in their sufferings? Every single prisoner heard the gospel. And their own prison guard took them to his house, cleaned the wounds he inflicted on them, fed them. They preached the gospel to the jailer and his family. They received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And you know what they do? They go back to jail. If you want to know what happens after that, check out Acts 16. But it's radical stuff. They didn't veer away from sufferings and hardship. They embraced them because, well, I want to go through the pain because Jesus went through the pain. I want to go through it with them. You guys know what this is like, especially husbands and wives. If you love each other, my wife is going through a hard time. I just want to help her in any way. That means I'll go through it with her. We're called to do that. That's what binds us together. Guys, times are drawing closer to Jesus calling his church home to be with him. We're running out of time. And as the world draws closer and closer to his return, let's meditate on what the Lord tells us in Hebrews 10, 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Newsflash, you can't do that on social media. You gotta be together physically. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to press in more in our fellowship together as the day draws near. So in closing, because I know i got to wrap it up here, I just want to challenge us to consider something. How loyal are you? How loyal am I? How loyal are we to Jesus and his fellowship? What are we willing to sacrifice for Jesus' fellowship? He paid the ultimate price the ultimate price to have fellowship with us and for us to have it together with each other. Will you make it your life's number one goal to do the same, to have fellowship with Jesus and to be a part of his people? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And um, God, you know what you wanted said and and where all of us are at, I don't. You just put me here to bring a message. I pray, God, that we would receive this message in humility, though, so that it will plant in our hearts and affect the way we live our lives. I pray, Jesus, that we would not take advantage or <laughs> that we would take advantage of this incredible fellowship that you've called us to be a part of. And I don't mean the bridge. This is just one fellowship of the greater. The world and even people within the church are saying lots of nasty things about the church. But you love the church so much that you call the church your bride. We need each other with you. Help us to understand, Father, our great need for you and to do it together. And with our eyes closed, our heads bowed, if there's someone here who has broken fellowship with someone else, we'd love to pray with you about it, but I would urge you even more to go, go talk with them. And if that means you have to be wronged, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6. If we have to be wronged or suffer wrong for the sake of honoring Jesus and how we treat each other, then do it. Sacrifice. He will honor you. He will give you favor. Jesus, I pray that you would prepare this fellowship to go deeper in your spirit that we would walk with you in faith like we haven't in the past 16 years. You've taken us this far. Help us, help us to go down the road again.
further and tighter than ever before. If there's anyone here who has not received Jesus and longs for this fellowship, come pray with us and we would love to introduce you to Jesus and invite you into this fellowship. And for the rest of us who do know Jesus and are a part, an honored member of this body, come pray, come join us at the tables and pray with us, asking the Lord for the things he's put on your heart for fellowship. We lift this up to you now, Lord. Would you please quiet our souls and guide us in the meditation of our hearts as we consider your word in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table. We're here to pray.